My friends, what lays before you is the myriad knowledge of an unfathomable universe. Join our intrepid remembrancers as they explore the heresy as history. From deep within the farthest reaches of the great library of Tiska, we are the Heresy Grad School. So said the War Master in his wisdom. Go forth, my sons, and illuminate them. Well, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Heresy Grad School, where we cover heresy as history. And so this is going to be our our special patron-selected episode, and we're covering Eleanor, which, as you all know, I'm, I'm very happy about and very excited about. Uh, there you go. That's, that's what I got. Oh, you ready for this, Dave? I am. I am, actually. And uh, I just want to say thanks to Pat, because I would never have done this. And thanks to our listeners, too. I would never have gone down this rabbit hole um, without being sort of parodied and pushed uh, into this. Because it's there, you know, Ulanor is one of those huge events that weighs so heavily the lore and we know so little about it. Um, and so we're going to talk about Ulanor, and um, I think we're going to find really, really cool stuff. So I just wanted to say thank you uh, to our listeners and thank you to Pat. Uh, I do blame you uh, for making me do research. Uh, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> half your job anyways, so, so deal with it. It is. I just corral is. you into the right area. <laughs> it's fair. I will say that um, the results of the poll were very close of our Patreon listener poll. Um, and so I think Jason and I are both looking forward to going, and probably Pat too, uh, going down the rabbit hole on the scouring of Nostromo. So uh, I think that's where we're going to go next. Uh, so kind of win. If you guys voted in our Patreon poll, um, and you know, you're you guys all win because we're going to do Ulanor uh, now, and then we'll you know figure out what's going on uh, in Nostromo uh, later. Yeah. So uh, let's get into it. Yeah, definitely. Let's get into it, guys. So um, initially, I was a little concerned because the coverage of Ulanor in the Black Books was so sparse. Um, I think we're limited to an entry in book two, uh, which is Massacre on page 157, and then another entry uh, in book three, Extermination, which is page 161. Jason's going to go over both those entries. Um, it's super it was, sparse. It was super sparse. I mean, it really was kind of a throwaway, sort of like, this is what happened. And I was a little worried about it. So... I had to throw my research hat on and, um, you know, like all good grad students, the place you start is the internet, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Don't so, remind me. Uh, so we went to the internet, you know, I went to the internet and, uh, I couldn't find anything. And, um, 
other than the black library books. And so I started listening to one of the black library books and that was fear to tread, uh, by James swallow. Um, and I'll get into this in a little bit. Uh, but that book has a chapter that really, I think informs where we're going and, and sort of the extant lore on Ulanor and, uh, and we'll get into it in a little bit, but, uh, I feel like since we're uh, a horse heresy podcast, we should um, ground ourselves in uh, good research. And uh, at this point, I think Jason, what what do we know from the two and three, the black books? Not a whole bunch. Uh, you guys sent me to track these down a little while ago, and uh, they are less than a paragraph put together. So, uh, if we want to check the out... The absurd and the esoteric, that's what Jason's for. It's true. I won't argue that. If you want to check out page 161 in uh, book three, uh, this is under the section for Legio Graphonicus. So, um, essentially, uh, this is a couple paragraphs down on page 161, and it's really just thrown in in a couple of battle honors. Uh, this in turn led to Legio Graphonicus amassing battle honors alongside the Dark Angels, Imperial Fist, and Death Guard at various times, and their inclusion in the order of battle for some of the most famous and vital campaigns of the Great Crusade, such as the Rangdon Genocide and the Ulanor Campaign. That is it. So when Dave says we really had to dig deep for you guys to find some of this stuff on Ulanor. This was the caliber of things we were working with so far. Uh, another one from uh, book two, talking about the Firebrands, uh, one of my favorite Titan Legios. Particular campaigns which saw the notable actions of the Firebrands during this period included the liberation of Weber and the Second Gehenna Campaign, the Great Ulanor Crusade, and the Lament of Shedom. Uh, in this last campaign, a notable incident occurred, which was to have a later bearing on events of the Horus Heresy and accounted in part for the presence of Demi Legio Carcanos of the Firebrands at Istvan V. So that's all you get on Ulanor. And from the Black Books, uh, two and three. So we don't have much of anything to pull from from those. So that's why we had to turn to a few different sources this go around. But it's definitely cool, at least, to like have the knowledge of, oh, they actually used Titans in this engagement. Because initially, all you hear about is that, well, uh, Dave will go into it, but initially, you don't think that they have Titans on the ground. Um, but it's kind of cool to have that full frame of reference that, like, oh, they pulled out everything. Yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly telling at least for me, that the Forge World um, authors used the Legio entries for Graphonicus and uh, the Firebrands to mention Ulanor. You know, and so this is early days, guys. And so it, this was a place for um, the unwritten lore to reside, right? And so I think that's that's a good place for it. Um but it wasn't really enough to do, you know, what, what we try to do is, which is give you guys at least an hour, um, podcast. And so, uh, what I started doing 
is looking at where the other extant lore for uh, Ulanor was. And we come to this really critical chapter in uh, Fear to Tread by James Swallow. Uh, it's really a standalone chapter. It's sort of considered an interlude um, in literary terms. Uh, it sort of it, it exists in, in the storyline um, from a narrative perspective, but it, it's not chronologically tied to the narrative um, at large. And I don't think I've ever read Fear to Tread. I don't know. Have you guys Fear to Tread? I think it was just one of those things that passed by. I have it, gosh, maybe twice. But to me, it's one of those ones like Ruin Storm that feels a little fillery and it doesn't stick with you after you read it. At least yeah, Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, definitely one of those, like Jason was saying, definitely just one of those filler books. I mean, it, it had some good points in it. And I mean, it's been forever since I've read it, but I can. I didn't even realize that, or I must have completely forgot that there's this whole chapter, you know? And I think that's sort of maybe where it, it um, finds its, its, um, you know, its center of mass, right? Center of gravity. Um, and maybe it is sort of a background book, really. I'd have to go back and check, but. But um, I mean, so is yeah. the outcast dead and I can't <laughs> not say that that book is a fantastic and amazing. And every single one of you who's listening right now should go and read it immediately. That's 100%. Not... Oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you guys should listen to the tread uh, by James Lowe and certainly listen to or, um, interlude. Uh, it's like, I think chapter eight, if you're on audio and, uh, I don't know. You just find it in the print version if you have it. But what that let me led me to is that the seeds for uh, Chondax are laid in Ulanor, um, even well before Davin, uh, well before Horus goes to Davin um, and has that uh, you know um, interacts with 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 um, the. Athame and um, you know gets gets sick and taken to the uh, the lodge, right? The Davani priest lodge. Well before that, there are seeds being laid, which really sort of begs to question uh, the outside influences involved uh, in the larger galactic civil war that we know as the Horus Heresy. But um, that led me to go to book eight. And so, just like good grad students, always do your own research, people, right? Always do your own research because book eight is not listed as a reference or resource for Ulanor, and it absolutely should be because there are like three pages in book eight, Malevolence, page 76 to 79 where we get some really good lore. And uh, it sort of speaks to um, false gods, fear to tread, and the Index Astartes, which uh, Jay's cover in a little bit. Um, so it sort of solidifies some of that lore that we know. But it also builds that. And so what we get from book eight 
is that present at Ulanor during the Ulanor Crusade. So when we talk about Ulanor, there's two parts, right? There's the Ulanor Crusade, which is the larger conflict. This is sort of the this is the galactic conflict that's trying to suppress the orc menic menace. And we can think of the orc menace being on the scale of the Rangden and probably on the scale of maybe the Frawl, um, but certainly a major Xenos threat to the survival of the Imperium. Um, I think you could argue with that to some extent. I think you could say the Rangden certainly posed a greater threat um, because of their ability to manipulate um, you know, human psyche and, and mind control and everything else. I mean, orcs, right? They sort of, you know, not to downplay orcs. I mean, they're, they're walking sentient fungus. Like it's, it's, you can downplay them. It's perfectly fine. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the, I think the threat of orcs is that they are like, they're sort of like a, a fungus. They're sort of like a virus, right? They just spread. Uh, in fact, they spread spores out the most when you kill them. Ooh, well, so there you go, guys. Maybe that's that, that was the missing link there. So, so anyway, uh, yeah. so so um, what we didn't know about the Ulanor Crusade um, is that there was a detachment of Sisters of Silence that was. Uh, sort of sent into the crusade attached to uh, the, the Ulanor sort of, I guess, what would you call it? The suppression. Um, and then shows up in the rosters for uh, Chondax. And so it's a, it's a demi demi vigil of sisters of silence. Um, so they're basically several cotters, cadres of uh, sisters all based on one, um, they call it a, a Malifax uh, frigate or Malifax cruiser. Uh, so we can assume that it's sort of like a, a standard, um, you know, ship of the line cruiser. But uh, but yeah, uh, very interestingly, they had some Terran-made jet bikes, which may have endeared them to the White Scars. And we know the White Scars were one of the legions that went to prosecute Chondax. But that they were present at Ulanor is, I think, something that we did not know before. Um, and that the other thing that we learn from Book 8 uh, that sort of uh, solidifies the lore is that the at Ulanor Prime, the capital of this orc empire, um, the, the orc overlord was Urlock Urg. Uh, so that's both from book eight and Fear to Tread. So we know that it's Urlock Urg. We know that Horus is the one that takes him down. Um, and we know that Abaddon was there um, in the room that he went in with the Justarin and he was probably the only one from the Justarin to survive uh, that particular decapitation strike, that encounter. So um, the other thing that's interesting that we learn, I think this is from Fear to Tread, 
is that there's an award that's given to every single uh, soldier, um, mortal, um, auxilia, army, um, guard, ever that's standing on the battlefield at Ulanor. It's called um, the Onyx and Gold Triumph Bar. It's forged from bolt shells recovered from the field of battle and then melted down. And so uh, I thought that was really cool too. Sort of an interesting little, um, you know, reference to something. If you guys are doing like an Ulanor uh, Crusade uh, host, you could you could do that award. So it's kind of interesting that you bring up uh, the Sisters of Silence because, and I'll go into this a little bit later, but um, we're going to talk a little bit into the forty. 40- uh, into the 40k world with the beast arise series but at the very end of their campaign in order to purge Olinor completely they do use sisters of silence against uh orc weird boys which is their version of a psyker really yeah so um they i may as well cover this a little bit here they they use um they take the sisters and they use them against weird boys because they have a nulling effect. And so it just kind of reverses the effect of um, orcs thrive on this energy called wog energy, which is essentially like everybody gets hyped. Everybody gets big. Everybody wants to fight, um, which is probably the simplest way to put it. But that's well, why because yeah, they're all football hooligans. Yeah, essentially. Who else, yeah. who else knows getting hype better than football hooligans? <laughs> um, but but so they create this negative wave of wog energy and it and it just destroys them. So yeah. So I mean there there you go, sisters in action. Um if I had thought about it in our sisters episode, I should have brought it up then, but it kind of is a testament to their to their null factor. Yeah, no, I I'm mean, so I I really like this. This this tie between because Pat, the Beast Arises series is not, I mean, it's not that far off, right, in the timeline. No, so you're looking at, um, it's like 1500 standard years later. So um, uh, 544 M32. So not, not, again, it's a long way away, but not that long away. It's not your traditional 40K. Yeah, like... Um, you know, the Imperium has had time to settle and they've gotten complacent. And because now they're doubting whether or not they even need space Marines anymore, because, yeah, they're fighting little, maybe little contingents of like just little orc factions or like there's occasionally Eldar that they got to deal with. But all in all, the Imperium is safe. And then. Orcs show up organized orcs scary giant orcs bigger than space marines show up um yeah yeah Yeah, i'll be be honest i i this doing the research for this episode made me want to read the beast i'll say this about the entire series is it paints an amazing picture of the political system of the imperium i guess in the early 40 or 40k um and it also very much speaks to the hubris of space marines 
which again, the first book was released a long time ago and the last book, the very last book, uh, the beheading was released in 2016. So I'm not stepping on anybody's toes at this point. Um, but I'll say small spoiler, um, almost all of the Imperial fist chapter gets wiped out because of hubris. Cause they think that they can stand and they can be a full wall, but, but they couldn't. Um, but that's not really new. That's not that's news. Not, that's not new. <laughs> no, I've been rubbing that in Jared's face for the past. Yeah. You know, however many years I've been playing heresy. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, no, it, they're fantastically written and they're, they're all written. Almost all of them are written by different authors, but you got Rob Sanders in there. You got Dan Abnett. I think ABD did a book. I want to say um, it's, a, it's tons of different author, authors. Does, does Dan kick this off? Is he, yes, is he, he, he writes the first book. Yeah. And I think that's what made me want to read it. At least the first book. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I think I'm going to get to that at some point. Is it an audio book also, Pat? Yes, it is. Um, Dan. So I'll just go through the authors real quick, just because it's a fantastic series. You've got Dan Abnett, Rob Sanders, Gav Thorpe, uh, David Annandale, which in my opinion, um, he is one of the best orc writers. Um, if anyone is really interested in orcs out there, look for, um, the book series, uh, the over fiend. It, it's actually really good. And then, uh, you also have David Guire in there and Guy Haley. And those are the, the big players. Really? That's sort of the lineup for the Horus heresy. When you think about it. Yeah. And I wonder like, because so I am slaughtered. Let's just look at that real quick. I Am Slaughter was released 2015, and then the last one, The Beheading, was released late 2016. So I wonder if, like, this might have been a way for Black Library and GW to maybe be like, hey, I mean, Dan Abnett, of course, and a bunch of these guys have written uh, 40K novels, but I feel like these are more, or this whole beast arise series is written more in a 30 K mindset. Do you get my yeah. drift? Because you can, you can definitely tell the difference between a 40 K book and a 30 K book. I agree. Yeah. I think it's unexplored space. I think it's space where, um, it's the, it, it's sort of, you know, so much was won during the crusade. So much was lost during the heresy. So much was retaken during the scouring. And then it's this complacency that sets in, right? right. Um, and and certainly the Imperium has its challenges, but not Zeno's challenges, right? So in M thirty two, you know, really what we're talking about is in is is sort of a galactic human empire that's being challenged internally, but there's no external threat, and so that's sort of the pretext for the beast arises is you know, how the Imperium lets its guard down. I think a great human aspect of those books too, is that um, there's a big focus on uh, the Officio Sassanorum and like um, the different high Lords. Granted by this point, the Officio Sassanorum has been moved off of the high 12 because they, they don't see a use for them anymore. Hmm. Um, 
But the Grandmaster, like through his dialogue and through his parts in the book, it's it's talking about like how does he navigate and how how does how can he defend Terra when there's a orc attack moon over top of it? Yeah. Well, let's talk about that orc attack moon. So this is the last thing I'm going to say, and I'm going to turn it over to Jason um, to sort of to sort of wrap up. Is that is uh, we still don't know where the Ulanor um sector is we don't where uh what segmentum it was even in um we only know that it was referred to as the ulanor sector and at some point uh and pat you're gonna have to help me out with this at some point it it becomes associated with armageddon but i'm not sure how and when that happens do you want me to go into it now uh yeah maybe spoil it yeah all right um so listeners i'll say this once and i'll say it only once if you don't want to know what happens to ulanor in 40k please leave now and go listen to a different episode or go read the beast arise series much appreciated okay thanks bye um so let's get into ulanor in the 40k and 40k um or M32, close enough, whatever. Um, so within the Beast Arise series, uh, you know, the the Imperium is now idyllic, it's it's slovenly, it's lazy, do we really need space marines, that kind of stuff. And then orcs show up. Giant orc attack moons start showing up all over the segmentum solar and the inner rim. So um by the fourth book, third, no, third or fourth book, you have a giant orc attack moon just circling Terra. There's no, the solar, um, the so, the segmentum fleet is a solid four months away, um, and there's no way to defend it, which is insane. And they eventually get rescued by space marines and other contingents. But um, what I want to get into is what happened to Ulanor. So there's an entire campaign to retake the Imperium after after certain events in the book. And Vulcan, the Primarch of the Salamanders, is found. And he knows the actual location of Ulanor, which is ridiculous. And at that point... Um, What's left of the Imperial Fist, which is which is one dude, and then what is now the last wall, which is all of the Imperial Fist successor chapters, uh, come together and attack Olinor. Um And the beast or the prime orc that has been causing all of this has made his grand or made this giant city essentially right on top of where the Emperor and Horus and the Primarchs created that grand parade ground um that they talk about in a couple of the black books um and he he sets up this giant city called uh gorka grad and he has this giant um excuse me in yeah so he sets up there and vulcan uh runs in kills him everyone thinks it's all it we're good to go. Orcs are dealt with without realizing, but they didn't realize that there isn't just one beast. There's six different beasts that have 
almost entire legions worth of, of bodies to throw at them. And so then this is where we get into, it's kind of a little convoluted, but you then have what's left of this last wall. You have um, Sisters of Silence. You have have Imperial Guard. You have Mechanicum. You have all these forces coming together for for the good, as well as I think they had one Warlord and one Warhound Titan. I'm not quite sure which legion those were, but they all come together to destroy the beasts. Now here's the fun part. After the end of that would be the second campaign of Olinor, uh, the now chapter master or the the chapter master of the Fist Exemplar, which is a which is a, a successor chapter of the um, Imperial Fists, and the High Lords of Terra sit, tell the Adeptus Mechanicus, "We need you to exterminate this planet." We need you to just destroy it. Um, at this time, the Adeptus Mechanicus, who um, whose fabricator general was um, fabricator general Cubic, have been researching the Orcs' teleporter technology, the the technology that allows them to zap these moons into existence over Terra, over Ryza, over um, Ultramar. You know. And uh, and they say, yeah, sure, don't worry, we'll exterminate it. So they tell the High Lords that, oh, we destroyed it; it no longer exists. Oh, by the way, we we our charge for messed up somehow, but there's a brand new planet, um, in the Segmentum Solar in the Armageddon region. I don't think it was the Armageddon region then, in the Segmentum Solar. So what they had done is they had used that teleporter technology to move the entire world. And that is now the planet that we all know and love as Armageddon. That's pretty crazy, dude. Yeah. Sorry sorry for the slight ramble, but yeah, no, and it 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 speaks to the hubris of, of the Adeptus Mechanicus. Or, you know, just just how insane they are for technology. Right. Um, Yeah. And I think it it also may um, be, you know, so when you open up the black books, right, you know, and so you have especially the first three black books, you have, you know, right inside the cover, that beautiful map of the galaxy, right? All the planets, all the four worlds you know, sort of the domain of the Imperium. Like, no mention of Ulanor. And you would think, well, that's kind of an oversight, right? I mean, we fucking have Rangda in there, for God's sakes. We literally have a sector for Rangda. Um, But we don't have one for Ulanor. And so I think maybe sort of that is a bit of going back and cleaning that up, saying... Well, Ulanor is not there because it just doesn't exist anymore. Um, I think it's obviously a little late because Ulanor gets zapped into the 41st millennia, um, you know, at some point in time. But but maybe that's what it is. You know, I don't know. I mean, so, like a lot of this is just trying to to tie really disparate narrative threads together. 
without becoming very disjointed. And so you have to, you know, you know, you have to be able to give, you know, authors some narrative license, right? So um, it's also kind of interesting because there's a awful, for those of you who love BFG, BFH, um, love fleet engagements, there's an awful lot of fleet engagements uh, going on in this book. There is one where it deals with a space marine strike cruiser being attacked by a um, by an orc cruiser, um, and there's a scene where they're dealing with a boarding action. I think it's a Black Templar strike cruiser, but they're fighting, um, and one of the space marines looks at like the main like the main knob or war boss's armor because they, they're decked out in armor and like these full like just pieces of plate not well put together but still like armor um and on like what would be like an epaulette or like a shoulder pad is a is a piece of white plate with a wolf on it which you know ties back to the heresy yeah yeah that's that's awesome man i i love the sort of Easter eggs uh, that connect the heresy with, uh, with the, you know, the broader universe. But I also wonder, so maybe, so, you know, maybe they were thinking with these books that like, like you're saying, maybe Eleanor was just kind of, you know, we just shove it under a, a pile of stuff and pretend it doesn't exist anymore. But maybe that's the point is that they wanted to build this narrative of, Eleanor's just been sitting out there. Nobody recolonized it. Nobody did anything with it. So what's saying the orcs didn't grow back en masse and come back with a vengeance, you know? No, that's a great point, Pat, because, you know, Eleanor would have been essentially hallowed ground, right? It would have been essentially a giant um really memorial for the the great crusade the ending of at least the great crusade at the point where the emperor withdraws back to terra um so yeah you wouldn't have had like a large presence on it it would never have been fit for colonization or habitation other than maybe some menials who you know keep the park clean, right? You know, yeah. clean, I mean, you know, yeah. How big do that parade ground have to be? Like half yeah. the planet? Like <laughs> probably, but you know, I mean, yeah, so some fucking pressure washer or servitors, right? right? You know, so guys around that go and clean the mold off the shit. But uh, I mean, yeah. So, you know, it's a really good point. Um, Ulanor may not have appeared on any maps because maybe it was always just a place where, um, you know, history was sort of destined to make one point. Uh, but at the same time, I kind of think, well, yeah, but then you have Rangda, you know, and right. then you have, you've got Xana, for God's sakes. I mean, um, and then Lachi, you have any yeah. fight that they've ever had with the Eldar, yeah. that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. So I, I think it's, it is interesting. Um, we'll see if Ulanor becomes more of a, concern as we go through um the black books i would certainly love it uh i'd certainly love it if they came more to the forefront um but we'll see we just don't know that much 
We do know a little bit more, though, and uh, Jason has just a little bit more to give us from a very old piece of lore, maybe the first piece of lore on Ulanor. So maybe we save the first for the last. I don't know. Does that work? Kind of fitting. Yeah. Yeah. It's backwards. It's orcish. We love it. (laughs) Thanks, guys. So what Dave is talking about here is... um, a very old set of articles collected from assorted white dwarves. White dwarves? Yeah, I guess it's the difference between like half. It's dwarvi, uh, I believe is the plural. Dwarvi? Got yes. it. That doesn't sound correct at all. Shh. We're, but we're the subject anyhow. matter experts here, Jason. We can say what we want to say. Oh, goodness. All right, so... Uh, This is actually a fun little box out from the Index Astartes article for the Black Legion. So, everybody knows they originally started off as the Luna Wolves, before they were the Sons of Horus, before they were the Black Legion. So, this was printed around, I'm going to say circa 2001-2002. So, quite a ways ago. This is when the 30k the game was not even a glimmer in anyone's eye yet. And they were really piecing together what the Horus Heresy was. And I think the very first mention of the Horus Heresy is way, way back in like 2nd edition Rogue Trader days. But here we're talking 3rd edition, so not that far removed. But it's really neat to see how some of the same themes and some, even the, some of the same smaller details carry on far, far into the future of the heresy. So uh, a lot of this is basically the same stuff Pat and Dave just went over. Uh, the orc overlord, Urluk Erg, same guy. Uh, dozens of conquered and enslaved human planets. Uh, everyone knows orcs love battle. So the Warmaster, his plan was to lure the Greenskin forces away from his real targets. And other Space Marine legions were tasked with retaking outlying planets, uh, supported by newly raised Imperial Guard. Uh, as the Orc Armadas moved out to resist this invasion, the Luna Wolves fleet dove straight for the Central System. Drop pods crashed to the ground all around Urluk's Fortress Palace. Heavy shuttles deployed land raiders and predators, and armored Space Marines advanced upon the defenses. As hundreds of orcs rushed to join the battle on the perimeter walls, Horus and the entire Terminator-armored First Company teleported directly to the foot of the Great Central Tower. As the Luna Wolves blasted at the guards, mobs from the walls raced to protect Urluk. Horus left most of the Terminators to hold back the orcs and pushed up the tower with just ten marines at his side. At the pinnacle of the tower, they found Urluk in a grand chamber, accompanied by forty of the biggest orcs in his empire. Horus charged straight to the midst of the knobs, slicing apart the muscled green bodies with the twin lightning claws of his battle armor. The Terminators with him would not fire into the melee for fear of hitting their beloved Primarch, so they too crashed into the combat. Slowly, they hacked a path through the mob until Horus faced Urlok himself. The Overlord was an enormous orc, but he was simply no match for the Primarch's skill and unnatural power. First crippling his enemy, Horus hefted Urlok's broken body out onto the roof, and threw it screaming from the battle 
participants to fall far below amongst the horde of orcs still assaulting the lower levels. So, a couple of things I wanted to touch on here that I thought were neat. First off, even back then, uh, Horus has Lightning Claws, which is pretty neat. They carry through all the way to the Talon of Horus today. Also, uh, Crippling Strike is one of the Primarch Horus's best fun rules. Uh, after an unsaved yes. wound from the Lightning Claw, you know, you take that negative one strength and weapon skill. Uh, pretty handy, because it seems like they dipped all the way back, uh, gosh, 15, 18 years, to uh, come up with business like this. And I love that level of consistency. But uh, again, this is probably the biggest single source of information outside of a Black Library book that we have on Ulvenor. And it is arguably four paragraphs. And they're small paragraphs. I feel like we based, or not we, but I, I mean, I feel like the entire terrorist based on like like little more than that it was maybe a page and a god i feel like we did this once what was it was it space crusade or was it um slaves of darkness i can't remember or maybe it was rogue trader but it was it was literally uh less than it was a rogue trader yeah the very first mention of the horus heresy yeah yeah so, I mean, this is this is how the collective universe grows, right? I mean, it's so good because I do think there's an acknowledgement. There used to be IP police, right? The Games Workshop, you really used to, to sort of control what Black Library used to be able to say. What was going into the army books and code SCs, right? Um... And I think in those early days, there was sort of this idea that if it got too out of control, you know, the whole thing could fall apart. Um, but these days, I, I just feel like there's such a respect for the deep lore. I think there's such a respect for going back and connecting the dots to make sure you're grounded in, you know, um, what came before you that... I mean, I think we've seen Games Workshop, uh, like, you know, loosen the reins up a little bit. And so we've been able to get some of these, you know, more, the deeper explorations, uh, you know, and it doesn't feel wonky. You know, it feels like ah, this is the way it should have been, you know, uh, maybe instead of two lightning claws, Horus had one. That's okay. You know, and Abaddon has one lightning claw because obviously that was you know, what he got from Horace, right? I mean, and so it feels okay, right? I mean, I think, I think we're, we're all sort of, at this point, I think we're sort of sanguine about a little bit of retcon. We're a little bit of redaction, right? Like a little bit of the unreliable, as long as it makes it a more compelling, more believable story that fits into the broader universe. So... But I do love going back and finding just like those very early pieces of uh, of lore from which I think everything else comes from. So very cool. I think that's all we've got for you on Ulanor. I think we've literally gone out and and just like scoured the deeps. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think yeah. without like. 
I mean, I'm sure we probably could have gone into Armageddon, but at that point, it's not Ulinor, opinion. Um, yeah, it's not 30k. Yeah, it's not. I mean, and and the Beast Arise series is is the closest thing in 40k that we have to 30k. At least, at least the way I see it. Um, and I'm not going to do a synopsis of those books or like a long synopsis. I gave you a very, very brief one, but go read them. If, if you're really interested in this topic, go read them and go, go look for those little lore tidbits that Dave and Jason just spent hours of their lives looking for. Yeah. Yeah. But I think with that, Jason, I think you have an esoterica, dude. Uh, that I do, Patrick. Pause oh. for music. Hidden within the pages of history, there is a lost archive of space crusades, rogue traders, and warlords from an age of darkness. Buried deep, a tomb where the weapons of these once great warriors still exist. Unearthed from the vaults of Moravec, this is Esoterica. So let's get into this. All right, guys, we are back. And today we're going to talk about something else that's a little near and dear to my heart. Not as much as blind or pinning, I'll admit. But when I go to make Esoterica, like little mini tidbits like this, uh, frequently they come from things that from playing the game, I realize uh, lots of folks don't understand too well. and uh, things like how grenades move through cover and charging through cover work. Stuff like that. Uh, small, like, eccentricities that typically get kind of, you know, swept under the rug and, oh, whatever, it's good, just go ahead with um, Things like that that are kind of like stuff we all think we sort of know, but God knows, like, I have the worst edition bleed problem where... Just stuff from old editions, like back from like third, just throws me. Uh, vehicles without hull points, uh, a glancing hit table, and a penetrating. It was pretty wonky. But anywho, uh, an important addition change that came in, I'm going to say around 6th edition 40k, uh, is the advent of the challenge. And this is something that I feel like they borrowed from fantasy instead of the other way around that really kind of took off. And I think it's terrific for a lot of really thematic stuff. And if you're playing 30K in the first place, chances are it's because you love goofy thematic things. So I've realized over the last couple of months that a lot of folks don't understand how a challenge works, like what the sequence is, what you can and can't do. Uh, how many challenges you can call, things like that. So I thought we'd start here, and it's on beginning on page 95. And one thing I wanted to mention in the books here before we go any farther that I think is absolutely hilarious. So on page 95, uh, the picture you've got is a thousand sun zording a space wolf with prodigious amounts of bio lightning just going full-on emperor palpatine on it 
which is great. But then if you page over to, there's a double between 96 and 97, uh, it's that picture from the Coronid Deeps of Horus and a bunch of Jesterin, uh riding you know, a pod into a landing bay. And Horus has his foot up on top of some poor bastard solar auxilia. And those are the two things they chose to go with on the pages for challenges. Like, the hell kind of challenge is that for Horus? That is the poorest, like, sad bastard of Solar Auxilia to ever walk. Or the Void, as the case may be. But, let's get into it here. So, what is a challenge? Um, I realize we may have to go into how Lookout Sir works a little bit down the line, but uh, you guys are basically familiar with Lookout Sir. Um, Lookout Sir is a way of preventing characters from meeting an unthematic end quicker than they should. Uh, so for independent characters, it's a 2+. plus. For characters like squad sergeants and whatnot, it's a 4+. Plus, uh, to ditch a wound onto the closest non-character model. Uh, challenges are really useful for preventing that. Because while some models uh, have terrific special rules that go underappreciated, like precision strikes and precision precision is a word I can say, I promise. Uh, precision strikes and shots. You can still look out, sir, those wounds, uh, even if they are attributed directly to them. So it gives you a better chance of hitting a character, but not by much. Uh, where that's a really good idea, actually, is going after things like heavy weapons guys. Uh, they do not get a lookout, sir. Um, so if you center it, uh, precision strike or shot on a heavy weapon guy, you can uh, knock those guys out before they cause you problems. So that's neither here nor there. Challenges are how we prevent lookout sirs from becoming a problem. So first off, Issuing a challenge. They're always at the start of a fight subphase before any blows are struck. So this is before Initiative 10, this is before Hammer of Wraths, this is before Fulgrim on methamphetamines, anything. So only one challenge can be issued per close combat. Doesn't matter how many squads are involved in it, doesn't matter how long it's been going, one per close combat. Now, if you have two simultaneous combats, each of those combats can have a challenge. But uh, the side whose turn it is has the opportunity to issue a challenge first. If that side chooses not to, the other can issue a challenge. To do so, you nominate a single character in one of your units locked in that combat to be the challenger. Once that challenge has been made, no further challenges can be issued in combat that turn. If the challenge is accepted, no further challenges can be issued until that challenge has been resolved. If there are no characters in the enemy unit, then a challenge can't be issued. Uh, characters that can't fight or strike blows, so those that are you know, way out of combat, even after pylons, things like that, can't issue challenges. You have to be involved in the combat, which means a bare minimum of two inches from a model that is in base-to-base. -base. So not impossible, but typically doesn't come up that often. So, like, say, for instance, I have a squad of vets and the sergeant somehow died to a bolter, but there's still a apothecary attached and my squad charges in. But the apothecary, you know, you keep them all the way in the back. 
So he's not even close enough. He wouldn't be able to accept a challenge, right? He would not. Now, um, if he piled in, he could be, you know, challenged in subsequent turns. If he is within striking distance, he is within challenging distance. Uh, so however, potentially first turn, he's safe, but mm-hmm. you know, next round, you're screwed. It's a possibility. Uh, we'll actually get to refusing a challenge in just a bit and why you may want to do that. So, uh, accepting a challenge. Basically, if your opponent's issued one, you can accept it. You nominate any character in one of your units locked in the combat to be the challengee. Uh, and again, characters that can't fight or out of range can't be a challengee. So, where this can kind of come into play is in that initial contact. So, because this is happening at the absolute beginning of combat before anything else, there is more of a chance that you're going to have a character that's outside range of a challenge. So it's possible to use things like this to keep a character safe, like Pat just mentioned, uh, but not just from the defending squad, like the one that's being charged. Uh, if you're worried about a big giant combat character and the unit is spread out, you can actually make that challenge uh, as you hit the charged unit at the opposite end. So again, it's a little hard to pull off. Uh, it's a lot easier. I'm used to working with a lot of jump pack and jet pack infantry. So it's easier that way, uh, but it is something to keep in mind. So refusing a challenge. Uh, alternatively, you can refuse this challenge. Now, if you refuse, two things happens. First off, uh, people have the basic idea that one of your characters can't fight. Now, it is your opponent, not you, who chooses which character sits out. So keep that in mind. Your opponent, if you uh, refuse a challenge, your opponent may, you know, take your chaplain, who's like a tooled up combat character, and stick him in the back of the unit and make him sit out. Uh, The model cannot attack in close combat at all this turn. So you basically just lose that model. Now, that doesn't say he can't be attacked in close combat this turn. So if... Uh, you make the mistake of refusing a challenge and the unit gets killed out from around him, there's nothing stopping those extra attacks from spilling over onto that character. He's not safe completely, he just doesn't have to fight in the challenge. Now, another important thing, their leadership cannot be used by the rest of the unit for the remainder of the phase. Something else to keep in mind. Um, If you're using, say, like a Praetor, Uh, the unit's leadership is going to go down a little bit because they're going to default to the sergeant instead, which may be a problem, again, if the opposing unit causes enough casualties to force a morale check. Now, here's where a little bit of debate comes in. It does not say that the character is completely removed from the combat. Now, some people take this character sitting out business to mean... Say your opponent chooses your apothecary to sit out. Now the apothecary can't grant feel no pain to the squad. That's not what the rule itself says. Uh, Another big one is an opponent chooses your chaplain to sit out. uh, And now he doesn't grant fearless to the squad anymore. Now, by the law in the letter, that's not what the rule says. It says the model cannot attack in close combat this turn. Uh, It does not say they're sitting out completely. Uh, It also says you can't use their leadership. 
So while it makes a certain, not a certain amount of thematic sense, it makes all the thematic sense to say that if your chaplain cowers in the back of the squad and makes somebody else fight for him, that he loses uh, causing fear and granting fearless. But be aware that's something you kind of need to talk out. Uh, and one last small bit on accepting a challenge. Uh, it's called Heroic Stand. A unit that consists of a single character cannot refuse a challenge because you don't have anywhere to go. Now, uh, this is something I actually would get confused with Warhammer Fantasy Battle. So not only do I have Edition Bleed from 40k, but also from completely separate Games Workshop games. Uh, in Warhammer Fantasy, you cannot ex uh, refuse a challenge if you have less than five rank and file models in the unit. So basically, one solid rank. Um, in 30k, however, uh, you can't refuse a challenge if it's a single character. Now, uh, if apparently, if you have more than one model in the unit, then you can refuse and just half your unit sits out if you're two guys. But something to keep in mind. So, fighting a challenge. Uh, this is mostly for thematic bits, but uh, if a challenge has been accepted, move the combatants into base contact. Uh, note these moves cannot be used to move a unit a character out of coherency, and something to keep in mind too, this is more virtual movement for thematic sense. Uh, it doesn't cause difficult terrain, it doesn't cause anything that activates on movement, nothing like that. It's virtual movement to make it look cool. Um, and to place them in base-to-base. -base. So, uh, if possible, swap the challenger, the one who declared, for a friendly model in base contact with the challengee. If this can't be done, swap the challengee for a friendly model in base contact with the challenger. If neither of these moves would result in the models being in base contact, swap the challenger as close as possible to the challengee and assume the two to be in base contact. Now, a uh, very small thing to point out here, no matter where they are, they are assumed to be in base contact. There are not a ton of rules that activate purely on base contact. Um, let's see, Reaping Blow, uh, Lehman Russes, uh, Magical Ice Armor, things like that. But uh, do keep that in mind for the small rules interactions. It does matter. Um, so, and just remember, nothing, either the unit, uh, the models that move to make room, or the challengers themselves uh, take difficult terrain or anything like that. So uh, for the duration two of the challenge, these models are considered to be in base to base with each other when rolling to hit and to wound. So they use their own weapon skill and toughness, not the majority weapon skill and toughness of the unit. So this can be a way to call out uh, squishier characters in a big scary unit. Now, um, when allocating these wounds caused by either of the two models, they must be allocated to the opponent first. These wounds cannot be reallocated by lookout, sir. So, if the character is involved in a challenge and they slay their opponent, each excess wound inflicted by the victor is allocated one at a time to the nearest enemy model that's locked in the combat. Uh, when one of the combatants in a challenge is slain, regardless of what initiative step it is, the challenge is considered to be ongoing until the end of the phase for the purposes of outside forces. So this is another thing that kind of bled over for me for Warhammer Fantasy. Uh, in Warhammer Fantasy, wounds do not quote-unquote spill over. In 30k, just to be completely clear, they do. So if your challenger uh, 
causes three wounds. The challengee has one wound left. That means he dies, and then the two remaining wounds kill or are allocated to models in the squad. In Warhammer Fantasy, just for fun comparison, uh, you don't spill over wounds. You get what's called an overkill bonus. So if a big scary combat character annihilates a squad sergeant by five wounds, you cause a single wound to kill the model, and then you get four bonus points to combat resolution on top of anything else. So, outside forces. What everybody else is doing while the challenge is going on. Now, I know some people like to set aside the two challenging models and have them fight completely separate, and 99 times out of 100 is fine. But keep in mind that outside forces can actually influence the combat in the challenge. So, what do I mean by that? Uh, while the challenge is ongoing, other models locked in the combat can only allocate wounds to the models in the challenge if all other enemy models that are locked in that combat have been removed as casualties, even if the models fighting in the challenge are the closest models. So, not often is that going to cause huge problems but a few things to think about. Uh, unless you have absolutely no other allocation options, your outside forces of the challenge have to be out, uh, allocated to models outside of the challenge. It's something to keep in mind if you're trying specifically to kill a character as opposed to causing a lot of damage to the unit itself. Because it's very possible to, uh, to win a challenge um, and cause one or two wounds on an opponent model, but then lose the combat itself because your character that's like a big combat monster is bouncing off a resilient uh, combat character himself instead of you know contributing to the combat at large. So you cause two wounds, they cause five wounds, you've now lost by three, and you're taking a morale check. So, uh, it's also something to keep in mind, challenges do not keep your characters safe from the rest of the squad. It's entirely possible for the squad to be killed out from around a character, and then the rest of the enemy squad just pour attacks into that challenge. So, again, it's something to keep in mind. Uh, not a huge problem for something like a Primarch but definitely a big problem for something like a Praetor, which can be brought down pretty easily under just weight of attacks. So carrying on to page 96, here are some of the smaller rules that I don't see come up as much, but I think we should definitely touch on. Uh, in round two, if both competitors survive the challenge and neither is fled from the combat, they both continue to fight in the next round of close combat. If a character is caught by a sweeping advance but is not removed as a casualty due to a special rule, the challenge does not continue. So that doesn't come up too often, but there are a couple special characters with rules like that. Just something to keep in mind. Now, further challenges cannot be issued in a combat until the existing challenge has been resolved, and there's the possibility that another character in the fight might intercede in a glorious intervention. So something to keep in mind there, too. A challenge, even if you, say, are playing with Fulgrim or Sanguinius and you have crazy initiative, nine, whatever, and you murder a squad sergeant, that is still an ongoing challenge until the end of the, uh, that round of combat. So 
one thing you cannot do, and I saw this on the internet the other day, and it really upset me. And this is basically what pushed me into doing this esoterica. Uh, a guy argued he could charge Sanguinius into a squad, uh, call a challenge, annihilate the squad sergeant with Hammer of Wrath, and then the rest of the squad couldn't attack him because he's in a challenge. That's not how it works at all. Now, if Sanguinius came in with an assault squad, say, and annihilated the sergeant, you would have to attack the assault marines around him first, but a Primarch or any other character cannot just jump in and claim safety in a challenge. That's not how it works. So keep that in mind. Now, Glorious Intervention. Uh, these are fun, and it's a rule that I think people don't appreciate for the Legion Champion. Uh, they get to re-roll Glorious Interventions. So a character can declare a Glorious Intervention at the start of their own fight subphase before any blows are struck. So something to keep in mind um, that is the start of their own fight subphase before blows are struck. It's not at that character's initiative, whatever it might be. It's just your friendly fight subphase. Um, if a friendly character in the same combat is to about to fight a second or subsequent round of a challenge, you cannot declare a glorious intervention in the first round of a challenge or during the enemy turn. Nor can a character that cannot fight or strike blows, just like those that can't, uh, you know, in the first place, call a challenge. So, to see whether or not the intervention is successful, Take an initiative test. If it's failed, nothing happens. The fight current rounds of combat is normal. If the test is passed, the character making the intervention takes the place of the friendly model in the ongoing challenge. The character thus displaced fights in the close combat according to normal rules, while the character that made the glorious intervention now fights in the challenge. The two characters now fighting the challenge should attempt to move into base contact with one another following the same rule as the first challenge except. So, Again, that's not something that comes up a whole lot, but something definitely to keep in your pocket uh, if your squad sergeant manages to stand up to that uh, big scary praetor. Swap in somebody else. Swap in the Legion Champion. Jason, I, I'm going to be honest. I did not even know that was... Like, I have been playing for a long time, and I don't think I've ever seen anyone use Glorious Intervention um in any game i've played have you i have used it myself uh, did you use that on horus when i was trying to kill russ i did actually uh what pat's talking about there is a big giant like god what was it like forty thousand points aside uh super battle uh my it was a christmas game yeah my uh knight seneschal who is a character uh, performed a glorious intervention uh, and swapped Horus out of combat with Lehman Russ so I could stab him with my D-spear. And it went terrifically. That's fantastic. All right. I thought so. I have one point of clarification, and if you covered it, forgive me, but that was a lot. So coming from fantasy, and I, I think we get a lot of these rules sort of informed by Warhammer Fantasy. Um, in Warhammer Fantasy, if you challenge, if you issue a challenge, you just issue a challenge, right? So I issue a challenge, and then it's on my opponent to decide who he accepts with. 
in Age of Darkness, Warhammer 40k, Warhammer 30k, that's not how it works. You issue a challenge specifically to an independent character or a character um, that you're within melee range of. Is that correct? Sort of. 50%. Okay. So, in fantasy, um, you don't have to worry about unit coherency. Like, if the units are touching, they're in combat, so it doesn't matter where the characters are. They're basically going to be in the front rank anyway. Uh, With 30k, it's the same deal, but you have to worry about characters. So, Say, uh, Dave, we have two units in close combat, mine and yours. I issue a challenge, you get to pick which character you accept that challenge with. Okay. okay. Now, if you refuse that challenge, I'm the one that picks which character gets sent to the back to think about what he's done. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah, that was, that was the part that was a little confusing um, to me. So it, it does work basically the same way. Um, I'm trying to think of a a time when it wouldn't be advantageous to accept a challenge and then go to the back rank. I'm assuming, uh, yeah. Something like a Pravian. Uh, mm-hmm. Will actually use this a couple of times on me. Think about it. Edition bleed from Warhammer Fantasy. Uh, I charged a big scary Archmagos, his uh, Pravian, with like four Castellacs. And challenged him. And he was like, I'm not going to fight that. Just fight these stupid robots. I was like, but you only have four models in the squad. He's like, "Uh, I only need one. I was like, damn it, you're right. This isn't Warhammer Fantasy. Yeah, you're right. So the Pravian goes to the back, sits out, but doesn't... Because he's protected by four big, scary robots. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what huh. possible motive would he have to fight that challenge? Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely, it makes sense. Um, I was also thinking about maybe, like, if you, for some reason, you can attach a navigator to a squad, right? You can. Yeah, well, there you go. Sit him in the back. That'd be another reason. Of course, anything that's going to charge a squad that has a navigator in it will probably be able to s- kill a navigator with one hit, so... It depends. Um, it can be a way to really force your opponent to make hard decisions. So, say uh, I'm playing Mechanicum, my opponent playing Astartes, they have a big scary combat character, I have a really resilient Majos. Now, typically, unless you're playing a tooled out 300 point Arc Magi, they don't have that many attacks in close combat. But they're perfectly capable of holding down a Praetor, which maybe would, you know, cause three, four, five wounds to the squad around you. Um, it's a way to tie down an expensive character or make them sit at the back one way or the other, where they're not doing what they need to. Either way, they're not going to be contributing that big, scary, like, plus three or four to combat res- Yeah. No, I love it. I, I, you know, I want to see more challenges, I think, uh, on the table, but it is a tactical decision every time you go into it. Um, you know, it's, uh, I think we all want to see that, the epic, you know, squad sergeant standing up to, uh, you know, a Primarch. Um, but the reality is that that's, that's probably not going to happen. 
Um, depends on the day. Like, <laughs> that depends on militia, the dice. Yeah, I've had two occurrences that I'm incredibly proud of for my uh, militia, uh, not Lord Marshal, uh, Force Commander. So I always give him a Charnabale Saber, which puts him up to initiative four or five, one of the two. I'll have to check on that. That's a big point. But anywho, he typically goes uh, simultaneously with Squad Sergeant. So when you give them Power Fists and Artificer Arm, they're pretty expensive. And outside of his, um, you know, Providences, my Force Commander isn't that expensive. So it's super funny when he goes ahead of a Squad Sergeant with a Power Fist, gets that single rend and, like, you know, pokes him through an eye socket. So I've done that a couple of times. I've killed a... Um, an expensive uh, Terminator squad sergeant before he could swing. I also managed to last a single round of combat uh, in a challenge with Lionel Johnson, which was spectacular. Uh, to be fair, he whiffed all but uh, two attacks, and I saved those two on field. But uh, it felt good to uh, not immediately like get reduced to his component atoms. And then we were on the fifth turn, so the game ended. Now I to that uh, force commander as the boy who that's epic man yeah no I, I think that's that's exactly what that's exactly what we want from games man but uh, yeah Jason glorious intervention I now have in my back pocket and uh, I will try to use it at least before I meet my end of days <laughs> new hobby <laughs> goal yeah right New bucket list, hobby bucket list. Fair enough. Well, that's all I got, guys. But I think when I'm going to pull it out of my back pocket is when we're playing doubles at Nova. God willing, Nova still happens. Knock on wood, what have you, whatever. Um, right when we're playing doubles, I'm just going to charge in there with a Majos who really can't hit worth a damn just to pull you out of combat. I appreciate that, Pat. Well, you stole Russ from me, so I did. Best to see it's only fitting. Yeah, only fair. All right. Well, I think Jason. I guess that's it for uh, Esoterica. That is it for me. All right. Well, I guess we'll go right into plugs. Uh, Dave, you got anything? I really don't, guys. Um, thanks for listening. At some point, um, I'm going to ask Pat to set up a Discord chat for people that want to come on. And anything we've we've done, like Xana, maybe Ulanor, um, but uh, I want to do this. I've been talking about it for a while. Uh, it'll it'll give I think us a chance to sort of talk to you guys, and then also um, maybe take a break from recording for for one week. Uh, putting material and show notes together or give me some time where I can uh, try to, you know, get some show notes together. But, uh, but yeah, so that's all I got. Pat, back to you. Yeah. Um, I just say uh, thanks everybody for listening. Thank you uh, to all our patrons for uh, thinking we, we deserve your patronage and, and believing in us. Uh, but I also want to say, Hey, everybody, you know, it's trying times, so please stay safe out there. Um, yeah, that, that's it for me. Jason? Um, for plugs? I don't 
wash your damn hands. Yeah. That's At least all I 20 got. seconds, right? At bare minimum. And about a week ago, Jesse posted something fantastic, or probably about two, maybe three weeks ago, Jesse posted, uh, you can wash your hands to our intro, if you'd like. You really that, can. It's actually even longer than 20 minutes. I think Jesse timed it. It's more like 30, or yeah. not 20 minutes, 20 seconds, excuse me. It's more like it 30 is. seconds. Even better. Get under the nails. Um, but thank you all for listening, and I guess it's time for Craig to leave. So Please leave, Craig. We'd appreciate it. Just go away, Craig. I'm not going to shout at you. Just go away.